Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Simon Batts, an historian of crime and science in late 19th and early 20th century America, talks about the Jefferson Market Library in Greenwich Village. Formerly a courthouse, this beautiful Victorian Gothic landmark was also one of the first architecturally notable buildings to distinguish a rising New York City among the great cities of the world. You'll also hear from the CUNY John Jay Scholar about some of the notorious cases that made it famous. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Hello, we're speaking with Simon Batts, professor of history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the author of the new book, The Girl in the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Simon, thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's good to be here. Today we'll be talking about the Jefferson Market Library, certainly one of the most striking and distinctive buildings in Manhattan. Simon, I wonder if you could start us off by saying a little something about the architectural style. Uh, The architectural style is very unusual for New York City. This building was uh, started in 1876 and was completed the following year, 1877. Officially, the style is Victorian Gothic. And I think what's interesting is to know something about the architecture of New York City in the 19th century. It was actually very mediocre, very nondescript. Most of the buildings were these four-story chocolate brown townhouses, and there were no real significant landmark buildings at that time. There was no such thing as the Empire State Building, no Chrysler Building, no World Trade Center, and so on and so forth. And you can see the Jefferson Market Library, which is an incredible building, uh, something that you might see regard as a castle in Germany somewhere by the Danube. It's made out of red brick with white granite and has this fabulous clock tower and is a real landmark in terms of New York City. The other thing about when it was built, of course, is that New York City really never, in the 1870s, never really extended more than halfway up the island. And so Greenwich Village has a much more central position in the 1870s than it does now in 2018. So the constant complaint of New Yorkers as the city grew and developed was that it had established its primacy over American cities. It had beaten out all the rivals such as Philadelphia and Boston And Chicago was kind of an upstart, but really New York was seen as the major metropolis, the center of commerce, even the center of politics, because Washington, D.C. was a very small little place. And New Yorkers were saying, why don't we have buildings that are comparable to the buildings in London and Paris and Berlin, so that we will not only be a major city in New York, in the United States, but a major city in the world. And so you can see the Jefferson Market Library as one of the first attempts to create a significant landmark building. And even now you look down Sixth Avenue and see that clock tower, and there it is, a landmark building at a time when there were no skyscrapers because the elevator hadn't yet arrived. There were no skyscrapers in New York, not even many very tall buildings. So that was one of the first landmark buildings in New York City. And we call it a library, but originally it was a courthouse, right? Yes, originally it was called the Jefferson Market Courthouse. And it got that name because there was a market, um, a fish and a meat market on that site from the 1830s. It was named after the president who had died in 1826, so just a few years before. 
and the market grows and expands. And then in the 1870s, there's a kind of conglomerate of buildings associated with criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So you have the courthouse, which is the main building. By the side of the courthouse, they had a women's house of detention, a prison for women. And it was one of the major courthouses for Lower Manhattan. These courthouses were kind of sprinkled around New York. It was a municipal courthouse. Mm -hmm. One of the things about the court system in New York City is that it's incredibly complex because you have the municipal courts, you have the state courts, uh, which are still around in New York, as well as being in Albany, and you also have federal courts, and they have buildings everywhere. And then you have the various changes in the structure of government in New York, and that affected the structure of criminal justice in New York. And so you have a series of different courts popping up. And in that building in the Jefferson Market Courthouse, there were three courts at least. There may have been more than three courts. But one was the civil court for the third judicial district. A second court was the police court for the second district. And as far as I can determine, that was a court where misdemeanors by the police were tried for almost like internal discipline. So you have police authorities would try police on various charges, whatever they were. And then the third court that came along in the late 19th century was called the Knight Women's Court, and that was for prostitution. So prostitutes who were arrested were taken to that court and they were tried in that court. So it was actually a location of at least three courts. There may have been more than three courts. There may also have been a children's court, but but I don't know. And what are some of the more famous uh, cases that we might know? Well, one of the early ones was the case of Anne Lohman. I think the date of that was sometime in the 1870s. It was 1878. Anne Lohman went by the name of Madame Restall, and she uh, she didn't advertise, obviously, because abortion was illegal, but she was known as the person to go to if you wanted an abortion. And she was notorious. By the time that she was tried in 1878, she had stopped giving abortions because that was getting too hot for her. But she was still dispensing advice on abortions and contraceptions. And that was illegal. And there was someone called Anthony Comstock, who um, was like a self-appointed guardian of morality. And Anne Lohman was in his sights. And he actually uh, went to her for advice and got her to break the law, as he thought she had. And she was on trial in the courthouse. But then during the trial, before she was convicted, she committed suicide. So that's one famous case. A second one came in 1896, and that involved the author Stephen Crane, one of the best-known authors in the second half of the 19th century, for the New York novel Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. Crane was really the kind of character we all would love to be when we're young. He was someone who was living the nightlife in New York, going to all the shady establishments, meeting all the disreputable characters, simply because he wanted to learn about life in New York to Mm. write his novels. The novel that he wrote, Maggie, is based on his experiences. And one evening, he was walking with three women, and a policeman called Charlie Becker stopped this little group 
and said he was going to arrest the three women for solicitation. And Crane steps forward and says that one of the women is my wife. So the policeman relinquished his hold over that woman. But then he arrested someone called Dora Clark on the charges of solicitation and brought her for trial in the Jefferson Market Courthouse. And Stephen Crane honestly believed that she was not a prostitute and said, I'm going to vouch for her character. And he defeated the police and he established Dora Clark's innocence. That was great for Dora Clark, but terrible for Stephen Crane because Stephen Crane was then in the sights of the police and the police started to investigate Crane's private life, found out that he'd been visiting all these brothels, found out that he'd been visiting these gambling saloons, and they started this campaign against him. And any time he appeared anywhere in New York City, police recognized him because he was a very public figure. And they just harassed him so much that he eventually had to leave New York City. And he went down to Cuba and filed his dispatches from Cuba. So oh. that's the second case. So I mean, not all publicity is good publicity. N- not at all. And, and also, probably in the 1890s, don't get on the wrong side of the police. The third case is probably the most notorious murder in the history in 20th century New York. And that was the murder of Stanford White, who was the city's most celebrated architect. And and White is the person who was more responsible than any other person for doing what New Yorkers wanted architects to do, create landmark buildings, Mm -hmm. grand scale. And the most famous of his buildings was the second Madison Square Garden, which was at 26th and Madison Avenue. It was a beautiful building, really a cultural center. It was designed for horse shows, so it had a major amphitheater. And um, it also had two theaters, one inside the building and a rooftop theater on top of the flat roof. And then it had various restaurants and so on and so forth, and there was theatre for music as well, an orchestra. And Stanford White was famous throughout New York, but he was someone whose private habits were notorious, going after young girls and people he met through theatre. And White saw the photographs of a young 16-year-old girl called Evelyn Nesbitt in the newspapers. And he arranged an introduction A few weeks after meeting her, while her mother was away in Pittsburgh, White invited her to a party at one of his houses on 24th Street and said there's going to be a lot of people there. Evelyn Nesbitt shows up, 9 o'clock, nobody else is there. He takes her upstairs, gives her a glass of wine, it's drugged, she falls unconscious, he rapes her while she's unconscious, and she wakes up naked in bed, and there's blood on the sheets, 16 years old. And uh, so most of these girls would disappear into oblivion. There are no resources. He was a famous celebrity. The thing that changed this was that she married a millionaire, Harry Thor, in 1905, and Thor became obsessed with the thought that White had raped his wife. And Thor, his wife, Evelyn, and Stanford White were all, by chance, at a theatrical performance in Madison Square Garden. And Thor went up to White and fired his gun three times and killed White instantly. And so that was the famous case. 
Harry Thor was remanded into custody after his arrest at the Jefferson Market Courthouse. And then he started going through the whole court procedures, going to trial the next year. It's a hung jury. Then he goes to a second trial. The district attorney is determined to get him into the electric chair. And Thor has become a national hero because he's seen as acting against a rapist and sure. a pedophile. And um, so Thor is actually found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he's sent to the upstate Matuan Asylum. He escapes from the asylum in 1913. He's still a national hero. He escapes to Canada. Mm. He's thrown across the border back to New Hampshire. He's eventually extradited back to New York. But to extradite someone, you need an indictment against them. Mm -hmm. And he's indicted for conspiracy to escape. And the problem for the district attorney was that they then had to put him on trial from the indictment. And uh, the jury declares him not guilty and declares him sane. And so he gets his freedom in 1915. So <laughs> That's an incredible story. So I've given you a long digression from the Jefferson Market Courthouse. No, yeah, I mean... Um there are thousands of defendants that were arraigned at the courthouse, right? Yeah. Absolutely, probably tens of thousands. I mean, it was, it's, it's very interesting if we could recapture that kind of history in its detail. That would be fascinating. Because historians really haven't looked into this detail. What we really need is some historian who would look at the municipal courts, which is what the Jefferson Market Courthouse was. So it was all about the city of New York. And then you have the state courts, which, of course, are a different system. And then you have the federal courts. And what happens in the late 19th century is that as social reformers get to have more and more influence within the criminal justice system, there's a push to set up specialized courts. So you start to get this women's court, you get a family court, you get a children's court, you get courts for different types of offenses. And all of these are somehow pushed into this municipal court system. But teasing that out is a very difficult process. This is an area of New York history that just doesn't have much research as of yet. Not as far as I know. I mean, if you read the entry in the Encyclopedia of New York City, Ken Jackson's entry, there's a huge entry on the court system. And it's just so complicated, it's almost impossible to understand. Yeah, it's like you read it. Well, it's, you read it five times, so you don't really can't really say you understand this. And it's one of these subfields that just sort of exists at the margin between these disciplines, right? And it's very, it's actually very important because I mean, so many New Yorkers had contact with the criminal justice system, absolutely. And the criminal justice system can tell you so much about the history of New York City. You know, I mean, there have been all these projects recently uh, in England, particularly a very well-known project where they've got the actual transcripts and summaries of court cases over 300 years at the Old Bailey and they put these summaries online and so you can find out everything at least the basic facts about about which crimes which the defendants were tried when and you can access this information by all sorts of Things like last name and the types of crime and so on. And I so think you've just given us our next project at the Gotham Center. Yes, that might be true. Um, historians and preservationists and, and New Yorkers in general are always lamenting the fact that some of those beautiful buildings in the city, especially during the last century, 
have been demolished as the city's constantly expanding and changing. Right. Unlike London or Paris, say, New York seems to have, have little regard for its past. Uh, one of the reasons the Gotham Center exists. The Jefferson Market Library is regarded as a treasure by most New Yorkers, but it, it might well have been destroyed, right? Can you explain? Yes. you have a thoughts as to why it survived? Well, basically what happened in the 1940s is that the court system was reorganized in a way that I can't really pretend to understand. And all of these courts, separate courts that were in the Jefferson Market Courthouse were removed, and so the building was now empty. And... Um, one of the tragedies of New York, as you've said in the question, is that there is so much architecturally that is wonderful, wonderful buildings that have been destroyed and that have now almost vanished even from the consciousness of historians. I mean, when I wrote the book on uh, Stanford White, there's this theater called the Casino Theater, which stood at 29th and Broadway, uh, an amazing building could have been preserved, could have been saved as a theater, but was torn down. And everywhere in New York, there are these old buildings that have vanished as developers have developed the city. And, and there's no good reason why that should have been so, except that there was no legal mechanism to prevent their destruction. And even Madison Square Garden, the one that Stanford White designed, that only lasted from 1890 to 1925, a very short period. It was a magnificent building, beautifully designed on the exterior, a fabulous tower with the statue of Diana at the top, and yet that only lasted 35 years because it wasn't profitable. That right. was the problem. And, um, and so the survival of the Jefferson Market Courthouse is kind of a miracle because it stood empty for about 20 years and it was slated for demolition. And a popular campaign arose, and this was before the demolition of Pennsylvania Station, which was the great disaster. And so it's even more remarkable, there was no legislation, there was nothing to prevent a developer from purchasing this building, demolishing it, building a block of flats on it. But it was saved by a citizen's campaign and now stands as a branch of the New York Public Library. So... It's a very beautiful building and certainly worth seeing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you for, for hosting me, and I hope everyone gets to admire the building and, and see it for what it is. Agreed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.